Voice America Talk Radio Network. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. As most of you know, you can listen to us every Wednesdays from 10 to 11, which is Eastern Time. At the end of the day, we archive the show. Joining me this morning are two guests. Uh, my first guest is J. Michael Zen, author of The Self-Health Revolution. I think this is his first book. He describes himself as an ordinary guy who discovered an ordinary secret, and we're going to find out what that secret is in just a moment. My second guest is uh, clinical psychologist Dita Olikar, and she's been on the show before, but this is uh, a new book that she's written called The Light Side of the Mood, Reclaiming Your Lost Potential. And she answers the question, if you are trapped in a life that doesn't live up to your full potential, find out why and what to do about it. So first guest is already here with us, J. Michael Zen, author of The Self-Health Revolution. Uh, Michael, just to give you a little background, uh, uh, lost, uh, what, he lost, 40, you know, he lost 50 pounds at the age of 40, um, looked at, I guess he looked at himself in the mirror and described himself as fat and was terrified because his father had died from a fatal combination of chronic illness and obesity when he was only in his 50s, and he didn't want that to happen to him. But rather than me telling the whole story, let me introduce Michael, and uh, let's talk about his book, The Self-Health Revolution. Welcome to the show, Michael. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you. Great to be here. Excited. Honored to be here. I, I uh, read your book a couple days ago. Uh, you kind of, to me, you're preaching to the choir. This is what I talk about all the time on the show. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think uh, the self-health revolution. Uh, but for those of us who don't know what that is and uh, why you wrote the book, tell us what is the self-health revolution? Why'd you write the book? Well, it, it really began with my father, like you mentioned. Uh, my father was my hero in my life, and uh, still is to this day. And um, he was seemingly healthy through his 40s, um, great athlete, and then his diet started catching up with him. And He gained weight, he became obese, developed a chronic illness. They put him on several different drugs. He seemed to get worse, and then at age 57, he dropped dead of a massive heart attack. And he died two weeks before my first child was born, he never met my daughter, never met my family. And uh, missed out on many, many things and uh, greatly missed to this day. And looking back on it, I realize now it did not have to happen. And um, ironically, when I turned 40, I looked in the mirror and I looked just like my dad. You know, I had a triple chin, huge waistline, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, I was pre-diabetic. And I realized if I did not do something, then I would end up, just like my father, at, at a much younger age. I, you know, I looked at the picture in the book because you have a photograph of you as Fat Michael. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
and you're a good-looking guy. I can oh, see well, it. thanks. <laughs> but I'm saying, oh, my God, because you're in a bathing suit. I think you are. <laughs> yeah, <because> yeah. <laughs> I happen to be wearing a bathing suit for that pose. Yeah, which um, is perfect, you know, People right? look at that, and they think, I, they think it's fabricated because it, just, <laughs> it looks so different uh, than and, I look today. Yeah, now uh, you're, I've seen the pictures, that, what you look like today. I mean, you're thin, you're buff, you're in good shape. Um, okay, so, you know, that happens to a lot of people, though, Michael. I mean, like, yeah. you know, their parents die in their 50s and 60s and they're obese. And to me, it always seems to be the elephant in the room. Nobody wants to mention that. No one talks about that. We, you know, the, the fact that maybe they perhaps caused their premature death because they were so fat, ate the wrong foods, and that we do have choices. Mm. We blame it on everything else, you know, diseases and, and whatever else we can blame it on, but not... We don't see ourselves as making good choices, but well, I, and I think that's I. I think what I realized is I have to take responsibility for myself, and that's where the idea of self-help comes from. These days, especially these days, we have to take control of our own health. I think a lot of people do not realize why this is happening to them. All right, so they tell us why it's happening. Let's let's backtrack a little. What is the self? Maybe before we talk about the self-health revolution and that we should really, you know, as you and I are saying, do something about it, what, how do we get to this point? Why are we so fat? Well, it's, it's stunning. It's stunning. And, uh, you know, 70% of our country is overweight. 40% of our country is obese and diabetic or pre-diabetic. That's a 27% increase in the last three years alone according to the CDC. And isn't that bankrupting our health care system? And we also, we talk about how we can cut costs and all the other right. stuff we can do. Hey, what about if we just got healthy and we didn't use up all the monies to take care of these chronic illnesses? Well, it's, it's the, the, you know, I, it used to be sad, just sad. You know, we look around and we see so many of us uh, becoming obese and sick and, and even the children. It used to be sad. Well, now it's really scary because in the next 5, 10, 15 years, at the given rate of growth, our country is going to be somewhere between 50, 60, maybe even more than 60% obese at the given rate of growth in a very short period of time. And quite frankly, it doesn't matter what we do with Obamacare or what healthcare system we embrace. It will not be able to handle the onslaught of illness and sickness that's coming our way, and I, I don't want to sound like a harbinger, <laughs> you know. I think you're telling the truth, you know, <laughs> you, and nobody really wants to hear it, but I think nobody we wants need to hear, hear this. No, and nobody, and because we, I think we're, we're dumbfounded, we don't know really how to stop it, and I don't know that we can stop it, um, but, but we can save ourselves. But well, first, what you do in the book is help us to understand it. Let's take a look at our history. How did we get here? And you start with that. Yeah. I.e., 1972, what happened? That was a big turning yeah, point. Yeah, our food started changing. And, um, you know, what I realized is this, and I'm not a health nut, okay, and I didn't, I didn't even shop at Whole Foods. Don't tell John Mackey. Better not. He, he, he endorsed, endorsed my book. book. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't shop at Whole Foods and quite Frankly, I thought a lot of people who did or the people that were part of the green, organic, you know, environmental, um, whatever, hippie movement, I didn't understand them. And they scared me, and their food scared me. 
and I didn't get it. And, um, and so, but I begin to wake up, and what I begin to realize is that the food has dramatically changed. I talk in the book about fake food. That was not, but let's be specific, because 1972, there was actually what? The FDA passed some regulations that said that fake food was real. You tell us. Well, there's a long process where, you know, there was a time, Michael Pollan talks about this in his book, when, you know, artificial butter had to be colored pink so that people would know it's artificial. And there was a time, you know, um, I go back and talk about mother's milk. You know, Mr. Nestle developed formula which replaced mother's milk because you cannot sell mother's milk. And he got mothers to trade in probably the most nutrient-dense food in the world, designed specifically for that baby, changes every day for that baby to, to eating something that's just so far beneath it. And... Um, so this process has been happening for a long period of time. So it's um, all about the. I mean, as, I'm, as you're describing it, it's all of this. The description of mother's milk. You can't sell mother's milk. You can't make money off of it, like you yeah. can. <laughs> and if you've ever tasted it, you'll understand why. But anyway, it's like. <laughs> it's not, well, babies love it. <laughs> babies do love it. And that's and it's good for them. But uh, it, it is all. It seems to be in. All about the money, and in what night? But specifically, what did they say in 1972? Like fake food, like stuff like you're talking about margarine or whatever it is, or other. Yeah, it doesn't have to be labeled as um, imitation food, and uh, you know, and then and there's been just iteration after iteration. You know, much of the food that we're eating today is not real food. Pringles is only is less than 40 percent potatoes. In fact, in Europe, they're not, they weren't allowed to be called potato chips uh, because they're not. They're mainly flour. They're flour chips, if you will. You know, I have in my book um, grandmother's bread recipe versus the modern Wonder Bread recipe. The Wonder Bread recipe has 20-plus ingredients, many of which you cannot pronounce. Uh, Grandma's recipe has five things that you know real well that you grew up with. And we're eating food that isn't real, deprived of nutrients, and it's loaded with chemicals that we were never designed to digest. We have 60,000 new chemicals that have been introduced to the human body in the last 20 or 30 years. And it, it, that's why it's no wonder half of all men get cancer today. If you're in a room full of men, half the men will get cancer. 35% of the women will get cancer. So, so uh, And this was not true 20 or 30 years ago. Go back and look at your high school yearbook from 20 or 30 years ago, depending on how old you are. And, and look at the, the people. Most of them are not overweight. And today, go to a high school football game and look around. And it's not just the adults. It's the children. Why is this happening? Some people say, well, we're not working out. We weren't working out then. There wasn't nearly as many gyms. It's the food. And we have food today that's literally designed to make us fat. Um, it has chemicals in it that when we eat that food... There's steak that when we eat that steak, we're going to blow up like a balloon, and it's because of the chemicals they're putting in the food. So, Michael, make- why can't we change people's attitudes? I mean, I mean, what you're saying is it can be, I mean, you can go to your grocery store, take out any of these foods, and just go around to the 
and you can take just anything almost off the shelf. And it, here's a list of all the chemicals that are in the food, and then we eat them. And then we eat them, as you say, for 20, 30, 40 years. And then, oh, we're so surprised that we've got cancer or heart disease or diabetes. Why would we mm. be surprised? Well, I mean, I, 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 here's what I think. I, don't, I think a lot of people don't realize how bad it is. They don't realize how much their food has changed. They couldn't possibly imagine. Uh, like a lot of people have no idea that much of the meat we eat today, and I'm not a vegetarian, but much of the meat we eat today is loaded with female hormones. And people, if you said, and I've said that to some people. Well, I could people, use a few more of those. Well, <laughs> well not, not these. Not, not those. this kind of estrogen. No, you don't want this because this estrogen actually has been linked to cancer. But they, they, people are like, why? Even in Whole Foods, they're like, what? Why would they give an animal estrogen? And I say, well, it makes the animal fatter and bigger, and they can sell it for more money. And when you eat that estrogen in that cow, it makes you 40% fatter. And so granddad ate a steak. You know, we used to pass the fat down to granddad at the other end of the table. And he was skinny. He was in his 80s, skinny as a rail, laughing all the way. But, but it was a different fat. It was from a cow down the road that was wandering around in the pasture eating wonderful grass. And the and other so we, thing we, is, Michael, besides that, and my mother's going to be... Almost, she's eight in her late eighties. Mm-hmm. She too is, uh, you know, five feet one, five hundred and five pounds. Always has been, and even though she eats steak, but she doesn't eat the whole cow. And she's as most of us do, and we are many of us do. <laughs> yeah. Sit down. So she, even if she's been eating this stuff, she's only yeah. been eating like three or four ounces, you know, once or twice a week, but not eight pound, eight ounce steaks or you know what is it, one pound, one and a half. Right. Pounds. Yeah. And that, and we eat giant steaks. And, and what I believe is we're, we're ripping through calories and we eat so much, our plates have gone from 9 inches to 14 inches because our bodies are ripping through calories trying to find the nutrients. Where are the nutrients? And so we're eating massive quantities. What I find when I eat nutrient-dense foods, like I eat grass-fed beef uh, that was raised the way it was meant to be, I don't have to eat as much to be satiated. Because it is nutrient dense, it's packing a lot more wallop, and and so I can eat a, a lot less food. But I don't want, you know, I, I don't know who I was listening today, and I, and I don't want um, people to think they have to become a health nut. I am not a health nut, and um, I think there's a very. Okay, but simple- why? I mean, you know, you say that kind of like in derog- it's derogatory. It's interesting because you were talking about, you know, yeah. way back you didn't want to be a, a hippie, you know, eating this health food and organic right. food stuff. But you know what? Maybe we do have to be health nuts. Maybe instead of eating, we have to kind of say, I want to be a health nut. I want right. to eat a banana. I want to eat an apple. I don't want to eat some of the, this fake kind of stuff. I go to right. the grocery store and the person who's checking me out, if I have an artichoke or I, right. have some, I, had, I have special some kind of tomatoes, they didn't even know what it was. Right, and, it, and I, the way I, here's how I look at it. It's not about some, doing something new uh, or joining a new movement or something like that. It's really about getting back to the old ways. I don't think grandma, people wouldn't consider great-grandma to be a health nut. Uh, she was just eating very naturally. And, and, again, whether you see yourself as a health nut or not, I don't want to put you down, but I, I want people to understand you don't have to to be radical, I think a lot of people think, oh, gosh, you know, I want to change. I want to lose this weight. I know I'm not healthy, but I don't, you know, I don't want to have to become a vegetarian or a vegan or um, 
start eating stuff that tastes terrible. And, and I think um, that blocks a lot of people. I mean, I thought that for a long time. I think that's a good point, and I just want it because as a social worker, when I'm helping people, or when I used to help people and do direct practice, you know, you want to help people to maybe stop drinking or to stop doing, you know, mm-hmm. drugs or alcohol. You know, the same thing with food. One of the things you can do is, you know, not go from, as you say, everybody, we're eating all these chemicals to being a vegan. That's the other side of the coin. <laughs> yeah. but, I mean, perhaps you could start with eliminating one chemical a week from your diet. Take a look at the, I don't know, a soup you eat or whatever you right. eat on a, every, every week. Look at the chemicals and say, okay, I'm not going to eat that can of soup every week that has all these chemicals. I'm going to replace it with a, a banana or, a, you know, if you want to make your own soup, whatever. Right. Start like that. Easy. Well, you know, for me, it was it's something as simple as, you know, um, we've all heard you are what you eat. Uh, what I learned was you are what you eat eats. And so, um, which was much more powerful for me. I never thought about that, quite frankly. Uh, you know, what has this animal been eating? Um, how was this animal raised? Um, most of our animals are obese and poisoned and drugged up. And they're sick, and and that's why we're getting so sick and fat. And so, I, and what is this plant been eating? I started thinking about that, and just that one change, that one new thought process, uh, totally started defining what I would buy and what I wanted to eat. And that was one step. The other thing I started doing, you know, um, I, this is not a diet book, and I think diets do not work. Um, you can go down to the bookstore right now, and you're going to find 50 gazillion diet books, and I guarantee you. Most of them do not work. They may work for a short period of time. They're unsustainable. And so it can be very confusing. Diets are about depriving the body. This program is about giving your body powerful, nutrient-dense foods that will dramatically heal and change your body. And so that's what I began to do. I, in, in the book, I don't tell you to stop doing anything. Just start doing this. Feed your body first. And so one of the things I do is in this 10-day challenge is I tell you to start making a smoothie every morning. It's going to take you five minutes. I say 15 minutes. Really, it takes five minutes. And you load in the smoothie blueberries, strawberries, raspberries, all those things you loved as a kid. And you're going to give your body 300-plus micronutrients that is probably not seen in weeks, months, or in my case, years. But can you just... I don't like smoothies. Yeah. I don't like mushy things. I like, okay, right. <laughs> I like hard stuff. All right. <laughs> so can I eat just the, which I try to do, just eat the berries yeah, and, you the can. and the banana just in chunks? You know, and then I'm I just get trying to, to make it easy, but it, you, it's probably better to eat them and chew them up. Um, I just try to make it easy because I'm not a very disciplined person, and I'm very busy, and a lot of people are too. Um, and so that makes it easy. But, yeah, eating it is great. And the smoothie just, you know, I can throw so many things in that smoothie, like omega-3 fish oil, which I know sounds gross, but Awful. it actually tastes pretty good. <laughs> it actually tastes really good. It has some great flavors. And um, I put enzymes in there and a lot of, and probiotics in there. So there's a lot of things I put in there that I might not could eat exactly. But uh, what, ha- what began to happen to me, within um, four to five months, I had lost 50, 60 pounds without effort. I went from a 37-inch waist. Do I have a 29-inch waist today? I literally have the body of a 20-something-year-old, and I don't work out very much. I, I exercise maybe 15, 20 minutes a day. It is the food I'm eating 
And once you start getting this food, you want more of it. Your brain says, wow, I like that. Give me more. The problem was I was not giving it the choice in the past. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's such an important point because I, too, weighed the same as I did in high school. Wow. (laughs) We're we're very blessed. Yes. I mean, we are perfect. But I lost 10 pounds That's because I'm little. But those 10 pounds made a huge difference on a little person, like Mm -hmm. 5'1", right? So now Mm -hmm. I'm back emailing all my girlfriends, eat your heart out. I weigh the same as I did when I was a senior in high school, 104 pounds. <laughs> I mean, it's not distributed in the same way, but still, I look pretty good. And you're, but, one, but you just said, and I just want to say this again because it's so true, once you start eating real food, mostly chemical-free, uh, all that gucky stuff like the sauces they put on things doesn't taste good and it doesn't make you feel good and if you're really aware of how you feel after you eat that stuff and it's very difficult unfortunately to go out to a restaurant and get something plain but if you if you can manage to do that um good if you can't and you eat some of those even a little bit of the sauce it really doesn't agree with you You, it's so true what you're saying but you have to condition yourself maybe that doesn't take too long well, no, and, and, and I think it's, it, people, it's hard to believe until you try it. And, um, you know, um, my family, we're not as mannered as we probably should be. So when we go out to eat and there's something on someone else's plate that we like, we reach over and grab it, unfortunately. And we try not to do that in fancy restaurants. But uh, I used to reach over and grab ribs and wings yeah. and, and the fattest things off of the plate. And now I want the healthiest stuff. And, um, you know, the broccoli and um, the cauliflower and different things like that. I'm craving that now because my brain knows this stuff is powerful. And if you give your body that choice for a period of time, a very short period of time, it's going to start being attracted to those kinds of foods. I know that sounds hard to believe if you haven't tried that. And and I want to say this, too. I know... Um, you know, people look at me now and they think I've always been this way or they think, oh, he must work out all the time and things like that. And, and it, it, it seems impossible and, and difficult. And, and I never, honestly, I never dreamed I'd be going down in pant sizes. Every year I was going up, you know, a new rung on the belt. It's like, oh, wow, I'm up to that one now. And I, and I thought that's how my life was going to go because that's how everybody else is, was going and my family. And, and what I'm here to say is, you can turn it around. And, um, you know, within seven years, you replace almost every single cell in your body, except for some brain cells, unfortunately, and some <laughs> eye cells. You change out your lungs. You change out your digestive tract. You change out your liver. And, and so in seven years, and really less than seven years, you can start rebuilding your body with powerful foods. With fantastic foods. I feel like I'm younger today than I was 10 years ago. Let's be specific about that. Why do you feel younger? I can list a couple things, and then I think you should list a few things. Like, sex is better when you're thinner? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you have a lot more energy, you know? When you you have your, your, your car, if you will, is working on all cylinders, you know, the problem is our, we're, we're malnourished and we're poisoned and our bodies are barely functioning. Uh, you know, our bodies are struggling to keep up with the toxin load and the malnourishment that we're given it. And when you start feeding it powerful things, 
watch what happens. You know, people are so stunned. They're like, Michael, you know, I started this movie and I, I have more energy than I've had in 10 years. And I'm like, yeah, because look at what you're giving it. And it's, I, I don't know, there's some kind of disconnect we have um, between the food we're putting in our bodies and how we feel. And there's just something that we, we just don't seem to get. We understand we put higher octane gas in our car. It runs better. But we don't, we don't make that same connection with our bodies. You know why? And I think you're – actually, you say it in the book. I mean, this is one of your premises, at least that I understand it. One of the reasons it's a disconnect, because let's take it to the second step. One of the big things that you talk about in the book is of pharmaceutical companies, mm-hmm. and we drug ourselves. Because yep. we are – anytime if we, if we haven't – indigestion or erectile dysfunction, which I've never had, but if you have other, you know, all of those kinds, whatever we have, right, you go to the doctor, and what does the doctor do? He prescribes drugs, medication, Mm -hmm. they Mm -hmm. advertise on television, right, Mm -hmm. to us, the consumer, you know, you don't Mm -hmm. feel well, can't sleep, get medication. So that's a whole, I think that's one of the reasons why we don't stop Mm -hmm. to think about, hey, maybe we don't need the medication, maybe we can do it with, as you're talking about, Mm -hmm. our diet, start with our diet. Well, there's a story I tell in the book. It's sort of an analogy, but, you know, the guy goes, a guy gets a nail in his foot. He goes to the doctor, and instead of taking the nail out and stitching it up, the doctor leaves the nail in and just gives him pain medication to take away the symptoms of the nail. And the guy's confounded and shocked and runs out of the doctor's office. But that's what's happening in America every day. You know, if you have acid, if you have... Uh, acid reflux, they don't say, hmm, what's causing this? Let's figure that out. That might want to fix that. They just give you a drug to make it go away. And, and we wonder why a year later or five years later we end up with stomach cancer or something worse. Um, and this is how we do things in America today. And it's not working. Um, you know, I talk in the book about the number three killer that nobody knows about. And, uh, you know, the number one killer, heart disease, heart attack, number two, cancer. The one that nobody talks about is the number three killer is medical care. And the biggest component of that is taking your drug as prescribed by your doctor, as prescribed. It kills well over 100,000 people a year. It's more people die of that than AIDS, prostate cancer, breast cancer, combined Annually, and I know that statistic sounds unbelievable. Not to me. I did hospital social work for at least twenty years. Okay, and it sounds very realistic. <laughs> well, it is shocking when I read it. You know, even the legal at Simon and Schuster, they called me and they said, "Are you sure about this?" And then I sent them the information. They're like, "Wow, we've never heard this before." It's it's a startling. I think it's one of those statistics. Well, you got it out. You talk about it in your book, and. You know, it's, it's very hard for us to kind of overcome this whole medical, what would you call it, the medicalization of, of, of America? Or, I mean, I just made up that word, but it's we, we have to really turn our thinking around, obviously with books yep. like yours, but, but when we're bombarded with advertisements about mm-hmm. medication, when mm-hmm. it's big business, and as you say in the book, the pharmaceutical industry, what is the, the most profitable business in the in history. In history, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. In you know, history. We, yeah. So we talk about the big oil companies and we get mad at them, but we don't seem to have that same attitude towards the pharmaceutical companies, questioning the drugs that the doctors yeah. try to 
Yeah, Absolutely. And, and, and here's, here's the point with this, because it can be very overwhelming. And when you start waking up, like I did, I was not a health nut. I started waking up to these things. It can be very overwhelming. And the temptation sometimes is to go back to sleep because you're thinking, wow, what am I going to do? Look at all the stuff that's going on. Everything is, is against me um, and my health. But the thing we have to do is we have to say, okay, no one cares about me like me. My doctor doesn't have time anymore. The average inter- interaction between doctor and patient is less than two minutes. They make a diagnosis within 30 seconds. How can they possibly know? If you've been to the doctor lately, you know what I'm talking about. You know, I can't trust the pharmaceutical industry. They're trying to make money. The average 65-year-old is on five to six different pharmaceuticals. That can't be healthy. So who do I trust? Can I trust the federal government or the FDA? No, you really can't. You've got to start taking matters in your own hands and in some ways become your own doctor. Look out for your own health. Look out for your children's health, or you will be a statistic. You will be sicker than you'd hoped. You may die much younger than you'd hoped. You're not going to live the life you dreamed of, and you may say goodbye to family members that you love dearly way too early in life. So we have to take matters. I can't, I'm not going to change the pharmaceutical companies. I'm not going to change Monsanto. I'm not going to be able to change the fast food industry or the federal government, unfortunately. But I can save myself and the people that I love. Well said. And I think you, you say that in the book as well. And I think one of the things, just in addition to that, you said, you know, no one, if you die, no one's going to care but you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, it's true. That's right. You know, I mean, you'll, hopefully you'll, you know, people will be at your funeral saying nice things, but you don't, you want to live as long as you can. And I think, you know, we're raising up the first generation of Americans that will live a shorter, less healthy life than their parents. And it's our, it's our children too. And well, so, and um, so you need to, we have to say goodbye. And I want to add to the end, so Michael, because then, so get your book, The Self Help Revolution. Yeah, uh, yeah, and it's well, really easy reading, and it's it makes sense, and it's it's a really good book. Uh, and uh, I would like to do uh, something special for you and your listeners too. Um, if if they go to my website, selfhelprevolution.com, selfhelprevolution.com, uh, the first twenty listeners from your show, I'll give them a free copy of the book. And, terrific. Uh, just have them reach out to me on there. And um, I'd love to do that. I really enjoyed talking to you. And, I really um, enjoyed talking to you. And um, I will help to promote your book because I really believe it. I think you're really onto something, and it's it's real important. Um, eat well. Have a good day. Okay. All right. <laughs> All enjoyed right. it. Thank you. Thanks for being on the show. Okay. Because our next guest is here, uh, Dr. Dita Oliker, and she's Ph.D. Actually, when we sent out our press releases, we said M.D., but it's Ph.D. She's a clinical psychologist and author of The Light Side of the Moon, Reclaiming Your Lost Potential. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, uh, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show every Wednesdays, 10 to 11, live, and we archive the show at the end of the day. We'll be back in a minute. sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? 
If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me now is Dr. Dita Oliker, Ph.D., author of The Light Side of the Moon, Reclaiming Your Lost Potential. And uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, Dr. Oliker, well, she asked the question, if you are trapped in a life that doesn't live up to your full potential, find out why and what to do about it. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, and all of this, of course, is included in her book. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Doctor. Thank you. I'm de- I'm delighted to be here. And as you and I mentioned uh, before we got on the air, you this is uh, you've been on the show before, um, so it's a pleasure to have you back. Um, okay, the light side of the moon. Why'd you write the book? Um, I wrote the book because I've realized uh, as I worked through uh, my programs of study and working with people, that too often um, someone is seen as um, not really trying hard enough or they're labeled um, uh, dysfunctional or words like that. They, she wants to lose weight, but she's always um, sabotaging herself. And I began to uh, see it a little uh, differently, that it was a way of not getting what you want, which sounds a little crazy when you say it that way, you know? Yeah. Well, you but, say in your book, people who say, I want to get a promotion, but then you, and you give the example, you're, then the person's always late to meetings. I just want to give a few kind of examples because that helps people understand it, the ones who are not professionals. But um, another example you give, I want to get married and have children, and I have actually several girlfriends who uh, say this, uh, but then they can consistently pick some man who's not available or they have an affair with a married man so what are you doing those kinds of things and they continue to do it it's a pattern why do they do it and my contention and my belief uh, is that there are messages that we get in childhood that set us up to believe that we need not to get those things because of other demands if I am the child who is always the outsider, always not included. I develop a way of being that protects myself by making sure in very subtle ways that that continues so that I'm not disappointed again, so that I'm not hurt, or that's what I expect. Uh, Sometimes there are very, very strong messages in the family about what one is allowed to do and one cannot do because of the needs of somebody else in the family. 
So if, to put it in terms, let's say the layman's terms, that we can understand, like we're doing things that are sabotaging behaviors that um, we think would be good for us, losing weight, finding a suitable spouse, <clears throat> getting a good job, and we seem to always be not successful at doing that. So you're saying that there's, and you call, I guess, like not unconscious, but kind of subconscious emotional well, stuff that's actually, guiding us that comes from childhood that doesn't work anymore? It's it's actually not even unconscious. It's almost non-conscious. It starts very, very early. It's the latest uh, studies on neurology and how we communicate with each other so that the messages come across very, very early and very strongly. Uh, it, it's a way in which we, uh, as a uh, human species, have actually survived. And uh, the need to survive is very, very important, obviously. And so if I get a message, let me... Uh, the, the metaphor that I use is the Snow White story. Uh, maybe that will help. Um, in the Snow White story, not the Disney version, but the original one, Snow White is only seven when she shows up in the mirror. And, of course, the stepmother is furious and envious and, and orders the uh, woodsman to kill her, and then when he doesn't, she, um, the, the, the stepmother goes after her, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, Snow White lands up in a coffin, and the prince discovers her, and supposedly they live happily ever after. And that's fairy tale. But in reality, a child who would have experienced that would have been an absolute mess by the time she met the prince. I mean, she'd be post-traumatic stress. <laughs> she would be phobic of all sorts of things. And I say the child and children think concretely, and that's a very important thing to keep in mind. We think concretely as children. And when you ask a child, well, what does Snow White need to do? The child will say, she needs to stay out of the mirror. Oh, well, that makes sense. And how does she stay out of the mirror? And I have to tell you, adults just don't get it because they don't think along those lines. And a child will say, she needs to be ugly. As long as she stays out of the mirror, she doesn't get hurt. And when you think of it that way, we may come from worlds in which the people around us have the mirrors that they ask, who's the smartest of us all? Who's the most powerful of us all? And the child feeling that ducks and needs not to live to their potential. Is that yeah, that makes it clear, and I think, and going on from there, okay, this, I mean, you've kind of stated the problem that we experience using that metaphor in childhood, but then I guess we then we want to go on to next. So what, let's talk about it in, because this is another example you use in the book, children, children of Holocaust survivors, and they very often, in, you know, the, Children and even the children in the third generation are affected by what happened to their parents or grandparents during the Holocaust and then proceed to act on it and sabotage a lot of their uh, positive kinds of choices or behaviors. Well, that's why it's important not to say uh, parents are necessarily bad guys. The parent who survived uh, the Holocaust has a very, very strong belief of what the child, her child 
needs to do in order to survive. In fact, one of the stories in the book is about a young boy that I worked with who hadn't spoken since he was five years old. He was now ten. And the, uh, ultimately, what, and nobody understood what was going on. Ultimately, when the father was able to talk about his background, he had been in a concentration camp. And the message in the concentration camp of the elders to the children is don't speak, don't confront. They'll see it as conspiracy. They'll see you as a danger. So don't speak. And that's exactly what this boy in the United States was doing. But the power of the messages of the father was so strong that he was sending that message, protect yourself, don't speak. Yeah, and that, that's very extreme, but I guess most of us, or many of us, fall somewhere. <clears throat> we do that, but maybe it's a little more subtle. I mean, the beliefs right, of our parents, exactly. that we're, the survival beliefs of our parents, we are acting out, we don't even realize it, may not be as extreme as our parents were in concentration camps, but other examples that still uh, cause us not to be able to accomplish or do what we want. Maybe we should take another one that's maybe not quite as um, dramatic as that example for it. Well, the young, the, uh, the, the young girl who is the eldest in the family, uh, mother, um, there are three other children, and she becomes the pseudo-mother when the mother is not too functional. And uh, she's not available to have her own life. Um, the other example is a young man who, um, he was, let's say he was about, Nine years old, mother and father had divorced. There were two younger sisters. The father uh, came to him and said, Son, as you know, uh, Mom and I are, are not married anymore. I've taken a job someplace else. You are now the man of the family. And in a sense, that child took it absolutely concretely so that he was the man of the family. He was the provider. He was the one who needed to take care of mother and his sisters. And it was only after he worked through a lot of the issues that came with that that he was able to, he was always with (laughs) unavailable women. It was interesting. It was the reverse of the woman who's with the unavailable man. He was always with unavailable women. Yeah, and as you described the case history, it does make sense. Do we have to, uh, Dr. Oliker, do we all have to get into therapy to become aware of what these kind of guiding subconscious uh, emotions are, um, how, you know, they're influencing our lives? Do we have to be in therapy for that? I mean, I don't think you have to be in therapy. Clearly, Therapy can be uh, a good asset, a, a good, uh, a helpful way of having someone who you trust uh, guide you through some of the steps. But I talk in the book about things that one can do to begin to uncover these hidden messages of childhood. So, what are the um, the? Uh, how can we be? sort of initially alerted to the fact that, hey, maybe this is happening to us, maybe we need to take a look, maybe we do need to go into counseling or therapy, or maybe just sit down and kind of think about it, you know, what's guiding my choices these days? Um, Are there things to, to look for in our behavior? I think that when we start to recognize that we are sabotaging ourselves, 
uh, in ways, you know, if I want to be an opera singer and I don't have a voice, that's not sabotaging. But if I really have a talent or if I really know that I want to be married and have children and a family of my own and I am consistently sabotaging myself, then you take a look and say, okay, what might be going on in the world of my childhood that would have set me up to not get what I want? And you start asking yourself a very, very simple question. Would there be, for some unknown reason, a survival need not to get what I want? And you start looking at photographs, looking at how people relate to each other. You start talking to other family members. If there is a trauma in the family's history, you need to explore that and how your parents were affected by it. And, uh, whatever you can do to really open up the hidden uh, drawers, if you will, of where the family keeps its secrets. But it's important if you see yourself, and, and after a while, an intelligent person who can't keep a job, or you've given good examples, I think, you know, where, or someone with a fabulous voice who doesn't quite ever make it to the auditions for some reason or another. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, and then you have to start and take a look. Okay, I've got a pattern here, and it's not working for me. And then, as you say, go back and try and, and understand your your family history, your parents, or whoever the people were who raised you, or and 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 really get an understanding of how they operated. I, that's, now, you know, since we don't have that much time, also, I, you know, The Light Side of the Moon is the title of the book, and I think it's really important for us, you know, to get to know you a little better, how, why you titled the book The Light Side of the Moon. Uh, the Light Side of the Moon is uh, the title of, or it is the essence of the, of the uh, um, story that opens the book. Um, Many, uh, many years ago, my middle son was caught in a mass murder. And I was, um, I don't have to tell you, I was really struggling. Yeah. And um, several years before that, my oldest son had said, uh, come from school and, and said, what does it mean to die, Mom, because my teacher's not in school today, her husband died. And I, had, I didn't know what to say to him. And I said something about, oh, well, it's like the moon. There's a, there's a light side and there's a dark side, and, and they're, but they're part of the whole. And when you, go to the, when you die, you sort of go to the dark side of the moon. And, uh, but when you've lived a good life, it's, it's fine. And that seemed to satisfy him. And one night after uh, this great tragedy in my life, uh, I was uh, wandering the house, and there was a full moon, and I started looking at the moon, and, and I remembered that story, and at first, I got absolutely furious that I had said such a stupid thing, but somehow, in looking at that moon and, and recognizing something spiritual, and I can't explain it, um, I realized I was on the dark side of the moon, and I had to get to the light side. I had other children. I could not stand the waste. There were 13 people killed by a a young boy who was schizophrenic. And I had to get to a place where life could go on in a very, very special way. And I left a, a rather um, a good career in, in the theater and became a therapist because I felt that was the way that I can uh, keep the light side going for myself 
and help other people. And so that's the meaning of the uh, of the book. Of the book, I mean, it's a very obviously very personal. And I guess what you know, you think about how do people, when you go through something like that and losing a child, it's like most people and parents. I mean, how do you get over that? I mean, how it's it's sort of like I, I've you know I've counseled many people and had friends who've been in similar situation, and it's an ongoing process, though, isn't it? I mean, even it, it, it never. Well, you you the losses. No, but but when, but what's uh, when you can deal with it? When you can, when you can, um, uh, not hide it in in boxes, and not touch it because it's just too too painful to touch. What happens is that lost person becomes integrated into you in, into your life and continues. So that my grandchildren talk about their uncle. And they tell stories, uh, and he's and still part of our family in in a way that has life to it, not just old photographs. And that's what I try to give people the the feel of move into life, into a vibrant life, into a, a full life, not staying caught in the loss of one's potential or the loss of anything that was that meaningful to you. And your potential is extremely meaningful to you. That's something that belongs to you that you are not allowed to really exist in. And that's part of being alive. And so what you're saying is, I guess, is it's your choice. You have a choice to, 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 to do that. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. And when yeah. you're a child... The truth is you don't have a choice. Children need adults um, to survive. Children don't survive without adults. And if there are messages from the adults, without even the adults realizing it, the child will adapt to those messages and get caught through adulthood as well because they're so powerful. So family secrets are very powerful. And I guess it behooves us as best we can to understand our own individual family secrets and understand how they impact our lives and our choices. Um, and in some families, they keep those secrets pretty well hidden. And when you have very powerful secrets in a family, it definitely affects the children. Um, very often they become children who are very silent because they're afraid to say anything, they may give the secret away. Uh, I had a case where um, there was major, major secrets in the family, and the little girl had had gone to school, and for whatever reason, the music teacher went around to a few of the children when they were singing and said, mouth the words, don't make any sound. And she was one of them that she spoke to. And she took that literally, and she did not speak. She, her, her vocabulary was so limited in what she could, she could understand the words, but she couldn't say them. She had to go through a whole program of learning how to speak. It was very, very powerful. If, if, if daddy's involved in illi- anything illegal, and you know it's a secret, you're not only protecting yourself, you're protecting the whole family. Imagine how powerful 
that would be to never, ever give anything away. And it not only makes the child silent, it cuts into spontaneity. There's a lack of freedom to be able to just be who you are in, a, in an appropriate way. And anyone who knows they have family secrets, just check that out and see if you are a little bit caught in the need to be silent. What about family myths? Now, family myths, those are oh, different. That's, than, an, yeah. that's an interesting one. There's a, there's a difference between, the, the way I try to explain the difference between family secrets and family myths is a family secret is there's an elephant in the basement and nobody's supposed to know about it. So never mention it. That's a secret. A myth is there's an elephant in the parlor and everybody treats it as if it's a cat. And the All right, story explain of, that one. <laughs> the story <laughs> of that was the mother was actually almost totally deaf, but nobody acknowledged that she was, and the eldest daughter became her ears. So she had to be home to hear if the phone was ringing. She couldn't go out and play with, the, with her friends. She had to be home to see if the children were crying, the younger ones. She became the one who was responsible as long as mother needed ears. She was mother's ears. And that was the myth that mother could speak. That was the myth that mother could speak. Interesting. Give us another example of that because I am, you know, my mind is racing as you're giving me, you know, that one example. But, you know, what are our family myths or what were the family uh, another myths? Another one yeah. is that <laughs> mother was just a, an adorable anti-mame, you know, that character that yes. is just so funny and all of that. The truth of the matter is that mom was really dysfunctional. Uh, she had very, very strong, difficult emotional and psychological problems. She'd forget to pick up the kids at school, et cetera, et cetera. But everything was wrapped around, oh, she's so funny, she's so cute, she's so anti-mamish kind of thing. And that was the myth. And that went on for years. So I think and the that, children played yeah. it out by protecting each other. I think that all families operate on family myths to some extent. Um, and, you know, sort of... And, I mean, I really can't think of any family, either in my own or those that I'm familiar with or close to, where they don't have some kind of a family myth uh, that they play out. Um, and I guess is it always unhealthy, or is it? Well, it's the degree. I mean, if there's a minor little myth that that uh, um, grandma um, um, is. How about grandma is a great cook, and everybody knows she's a horrible cook. Uh, that's just protecting grandma's uh, uh, ego. That's uh, not a <laughs> and where you run into trouble then is eating her food because yes. it's just so <laughs> miserable. But if if grandma is doing something that is affecting negatively the family, then that's not uh, that's not a light thing anymore. That's not just protecting her ego. That's protecting. Uh, something that's dysfunctional that captures the other members of the family in that dysfunction. All right. Well, then give us another example. Not grandma's cooking, but let's say grandma Grandma's drinking. Grandma's drinking. Okay. Grandma lives with the family and grandma is an alcoholic. Right. But grandma, but grandma's not, we don't ever say that. No. Grandma just likes to have her wine once in a while. That's the myth. 
and grandma's behavior becomes difficult for the family to deal with because grandma, when she gets drunk, is very difficult or she wanders off or, or whatever, but nobody's dealing with it. And so the children can get affected by the, meeting the needs of grandma rather than have the parents meet their needs. So the children become kind of immersed in this, this cover-up, I guess, is what I would call it. But, um, right, couple, exactly. Yeah. Um, fascinating stuff and really a great book to apply to all of us, our own lives, so that we can get get on with things. And uh, it's written, obviously, not just not for, necessarily for professionals, but just for lay people. And the title of the book is The Light Side of the Moon, Reclaiming Your Lost Potential. And the author is Dita Olicker, Ph.D., who I've been talking to today. Um, Dita, is there any uh, website that we can go to? Or that, that, Actually, uh, uh, probably the easiest is to go to mine. It's uh, D-I-T-T-A-O-L-I-K-E-R dot com. Uh, that will take you to the uh, publisher's um, website for buying the book and also Amazon uh, and your local bookstore. I'm a great su- supporter of local bookstores. So right. um if they don't have it, ask them to order it. Will do. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Oh, that was great. Yeah, Thank that you. Was great. I really enjoyed it. The Light Side of the Moon, Reclaiming Your Lost Potential, Dita M. Olicker, Ph.D. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Um, we will archive the show at the end of the day, and have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.